Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series, Progress and Joy, a study on Philippians. For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged in, visit our website, cbcsavannah.com. We're going to pray, and um, I want to pray specifically this morning. It's been a rough week in the world, as you know, if you've been following along. Um, terrorist attack, pastor's wife murdered in Indianapolis. I mean, just broken, messy world. Um, and so we're going to pray, as we should, because we want to remember, uh, and this is huge for us. I know as you kind of people get comfortable and you get in your community groups and we get used to what we do, we are not a church that is all about this inward focus deal. We are glad to be family. We're glad to be brothers. But we have to be, if we're going to be an obedient church, a church that sees out. And there is a world that is bigger than Savannah. I know that's hard for some of you to imagine. You've never been beyond Pooler. But there's this whole world out there. Um, and God has called us to love it and reach it and go to it and pray for it because he loved it. And he sent his son to die for it. And so uh, we want to think outside. Yes, we, we got stuff going on, but we want to think about the world. We want to think about uh, people in France, a, a pretty much dead spiritual country. Um, and we want to pray for them. And we want to pray for our, our brothers and sisters there because uh, it's a great opportunity in the midst of a, a chaotic situation for the gospel to shine in a place that 300 years ago it was. It was thriving. And now it's, it's, it's very, it's very uh, dead church in, in France. And so let me pray just for some of those things. If you guys would agree in your hearts with me as we think about uh, kind of the, the world and then we'll pray for our time in the word and, and we'll jump in. Father, you are a gracious and good and, and kind, but yet vast and holy and huge God that we cannot fathom your greatness and your excellence and you uh, in loving us and re- you have promised to redeem this broken world that the creation longs to be redeemed, that the creation longs for the curse of sin to be lifted, that we brought upon it. And we just look around and we see chaos. We see wickedness. We see men made in your image who have rejected you, who have bought a lie, who have believed what is evil and wicked, that in killing someone, they somehow can earn your favor. Father, and it is evil and it is wicked. It is demonic. And so I pray against it may not be politically correct, Lord, but I pray against Islam and the wickedness that, that it just gives and, and, it, and this false hope of earning salvation, of earning your favor by killing those. You loved your enemies. You pursued those, Lord Jesus, who hated you and you died for them when we were sinners. We just sang it. When we were sinners, you died for us. And so may the, the lost world, especially the Middle East and the Northern Africa and the areas where there's just such a stronghold, areas that used to be so strong in the gospel. Father, may there be, just give the churches their strength and perseverance. We have no, we can't fathom what they're going through. Fear of being killed, fear of losing family, fear of all these things. So give them strength. We pray for France. We pray that in the darkness, the light would shine. Please help those, those few churches that are there to shine. May this be an opportunity for the gospel to be preached, for people to stop putting hope in government and stop putting hope in the economy and stop putting hope in anything else, but they would find Christ. We pray for our brother in Indianapolis and the loss of his wife. We know she's with you. Uh, we pray for his church. We pray that this will be an opportunity in, in a dark city for the gospel to shine, that the love of Christ would shine. Just, Lord, there's brokenness all around us. May we, your church, be light. That only comes by your spirit. That only comes when you're moving. And so I, I pray now as we jump into a text, it's a, it's a great text, it's a hard text, it's one we all need to hear. And so help me, like you did first service, help me. Because I am a rebel, I am a sinner, I am a, I'm a jerk. And I need your grace Teach your people to feed your sheep. Please help me. May your spirit fall. May he convince our hearts how good and satisfying and beautiful Christ is. May your church walk away changed. For the glory of God the Father, I pray. Amen. 
Thanks. You guys can have a seat. All right. We are closing out really the body of the letter of Philippians today. If you've been with us for a while, hopefully you know by now the Apostle Paul has been in prison in Rome for the gospel. But 10 years earlier, he planted a church, the first church on the continent of Europe, a group of folks he loved, the Philippians. And it's 10 years later, he is in prison. Somehow they find out about it. We don't know how, but somehow they hear about it. They send him a gift. They pull together their resources. And in essence, the letter of Philippians is this, is this thank you note. It's him thanking them for their gift and really an encouragement. Hey, I'm good, but I care about your progress and your joy in the faith. And so we've seen all sorts of great topics over the last 12, 13 weeks. Talked about humility, not complaining, getting along with each other, anxiety, all sorts of stuff we looked at. Uh, thankfulness. Well, he's going to get into a topic today. Um, it's going to hit us all. It's one of those, and this is where we really get into his thank you note. Okay, this is the actual thank you part. And, and it's so, it's so Paul. It's such, it's such a Pauline thank you note. Can you imagine, ladies, because this is applicable to you, guys, we don't get gifts except for very infrequently, so this is more applicable to ladies. But imagine you went out and you bought a great gift. You spent a lot of time. You put some thought into it. You had to go to several stores. You spent a lot of money. I mean, you just put some effort into this, and it costs you. And you send it off, and you get it all wrapped up and UPS and all that stuff. And you go through all that, and you get the thank you note a week later, right? And you open it up, and it says, thanks so much for your gift. Let me give you some thoughts on how to be a good mom. Here's how you can be a great worker, and it barely mentions the, the, the present, but it like tells you all these things and how you can be a better person. That's in essence Paul's thank you letter. And it's not that he's not grateful. He's just so other centered. He's always thinking about these people. He just, he's not going to waste an opportunity to teach. And he's going to teach on a subject. It's, it, it's, it's going to hit us. And I know some of you in the last couple of weeks, you're probably like, well, this hasn't been real super applicable to me. You know, we're talking about anxiety. I'm not too anxious. Although last week, someone in this service, I said, we're going to talk about anxiety. And they, started, they groaned out loud like, oh. So, okay, appreciate the feedback. This is a church where you're allowed to talk to me. All right. But we're going to talk about something today. It's, it's got everyone's name on it. Right. And if you say that's not applicable to me, then you're a liar. Because we're going to talk about contentment. Any groans? Oh, right, good, good. We're going to talk about contentment. Because we live in a culture that is in a constant state of discontent. Right? Every advertisement, we're coming to that time of the year, the cartoons and the kids are going to see all these toys that if they get that, then life will be perfect. That Lego will make my life perfect. That Lexus with a bow on it will make my life perfect. Right? That's all we're going to see. Right? And, and really, it's just where we live. Your buddy gets a new TV. It's bigger than yours. It's flatter than yours. It's clearer than yours. It's got LED, LCD, OLEP, 1080 something E. I don't know what it means, but I need it. It's what I need to be happy. I got a new phone, but now there's a better phone with a better camera, but you don't use your camera. I don't care. It's got more colors. It's bigger. I need that. Right? And so what do I do? I can't afford that, but I'm an American and I have an American Express and I'm being patriotic. And so I pay for that on my American Express and I can't afford it, but I'm being patriotic. That's the American way. I need it. Right? And that's where we live. We live there constantly. And it's the, op and the opposite of contentment. Ultimately, you know what it is? It's coveting. Right? And we don't think about that as a sin much. You know, although it is in the Big Ten, it's number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Right? It is, it is one of God's top 10. But we don't talk about it. But Paul is. And he's going to give us a couple parting shots in his thank you note to help us learn to be content. All right, so that's where we're going. But let me just say this right up front because I know some of you are, before you go to sleep too, some of you, so you get this up front, you know what I'm talking about. When I am not, I'm not talking about, contentment is not complacency. 
Okay, what I'm not saying is, oh, I'm going to be content. So if I just work 12 hours a week, I can pay all my bills, and then I can be lazy and do nothing else. I'm not talking about that. All right? You, ought to work, you are created in the image of God to work, to work hard. It is not a sin to make money. It is not a sin to be successful. It is not a sin to want to win, to get a promotion. Those things are not sinful. You know what's, you know what's sinful? is not working and not working hard. That's sinful. All right? So don't, don't think that Bill said, oh, Bill's just saying, just kind of chill out and do nothing and be content. No, Paul was the hardest worker of anybody, and he was content. Contentment deals more with how do I live faithfully when I have a lot, when I have a little, when I win, when I lose. That's contentment. So do not leave saying, well, Bill, Pastor Bill said I could drop out of college and live in my parents' basement wearing my jammies all day long. Pastor Bill did not say that. Pastor Bill says if you do that, there's going to be a bunch of Christian men at your house at three in the morning and we're going to bring bats. And we're going to show you the love of Jesus. All right. So just understand we're not talking about complacency, laziness. But what we are talking about is contentment, all right? And so we're going to look at what Paul says, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 20, specifically focusing more so on 10 through 13, uh, spending most of our time there. So let me read just those first few verses, because Paul's going to unpack some things there, and he's going to apply it in the rest of the text. But let me read, if my slides will work, which are not. You got my, Mark, your mark, you got it. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he starts out saying, I rejoiced greatly that you revived your concern. The word revived, it's a, it's a little uh, gardening term in the original. It's kind of a vivid picture of a, a flower that dies, but then in the spring, it comes back. It blooms again. It's revived. Paul says, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you revived your concern for me. Because what we see, if you read some of the other epistles, is that this is a church that's very poor, but they are very generous. And every time Paul needs something, they provide it. In fact, they're the only ones who do. They're constantly giving to Paul. But for some reason, that giving drops off, probably because they have no clue where in the world Paul is. Because Paul's like Carmen San Diego. He's like all over the place, and it's hard to keep track of old boy because they don't have phones or he's not sending out a newsletter like the missionary. Hey, everybody, here I am. I'm in, you know, Pakistan, you know, whatever. He's not doing that. So they have no clue where he is. They don't know he's in prison. And then somehow, some way, we're not told, he find, they find out. Do you hear Paul's in prison? He's in Rome. Rome? How did he get to Rome? I don't know, but he's there. And what do they do? They pull together their resources they send him a gift. But it's not just so easy of, oh, let's just send the check in the mail. This is, this is you know, no email, no, no post office. If they're going to do this thing, someone's got to get on a boat and travel 700 miles. Then they got they on a, in a little camel or a little horse and walk in dangerous areas. It is going to take time, months. It's going to take sacrifice. It almost costs Epaphroditus his life, we found out. But can you imagine... Okay, after the journey, Epaphroditus walks into Paul's room or house arrest, wherever he is, and he doesn't know he's coming, and, and he looks up, and there's his buddy, and seen him in years. Epaphroditus, what are you doing here? We heard you're in prison. We wanted to help. And so Lydia, she, she had a little savings account, and she, here, this is for you. And, and you know, the salty jail prison guy, his wife, you know how they cook so well? He got some jerky. Brought some jerky for you and some bacon, because we know how you love bacon, Paul. Right? And, and you know the, you know the, the, the demon-possessed slave girl? She's got four kids now. Four. Right? Inspecting her fifth. And the, and the youngest, he made these little socks for you. She knitted them up in here. We got these gifts for you. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. Paul says, I rejoiced. Right? And, but notice what he says. I didn't rejoice because you gave me something. I mean, he's thankful, but I rejoice. Why? Because you cared, because you were concerned, right? Because you remembered me, because someone cared. It's kind of like when you're down, you're depressed, you're just having a bad week. 
And out of nowhere, someone just makes a phone call and says, hey, let's go get coffee. We'll take you out. Right? Or they give you, you know, a $50 gift card to the Outback and say, hey, go take your wife out. I got your kids. Or they, or they just bring flowers by or they bring a meal. And, and it's not that you needed the meal and you're thankful, but the fact that someone cared about you and was concerned about you and they reached out to you, that just brings joy. Someone loves me. That's what Paul's saying. He said, I'm just, I was rejoicing because I didn't need anything. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I, didn't, I wasn't in dire straits. I wasn't sending out letters for help. I'm thankful, but I didn't have any need. So how can that be possible? He's in jail. He's got to provide for himself because it's not like the American prison system where you get three, three meals a day, you get a bed. You've got to provide for your own self. How can you say you don't have need? He says, why? Because or for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned. I've learned I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Circle that word. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know, you want to know why I don't have any needs? You want to know why I'm content? Because I know a secret. Who doesn't love a secret? Everybody loves a secret, right? Everyone loves a secret. Everyone loves telling secrets, don't we? We got, our family has been hit with the plague the last few months. And so Sarah's mama, she brought one of our kids, Trip, to go help make some chicken noodle soup. So she took Trip, and they're making chicken noodle soup. And Marmar told him, now I'm going to put a secret ingredient in the soup. Don't tell anybody. Oh. Trip comes home. First thing, I know the secret ingredient. The kids are all around the table eating soup. And he is... Just methodically, he, he hasn't flat out told them, but he's saying, here, here's a hint. Here's what the secret is. And he just keeps giving hints until finally he just blurts it out. Right? That's in essence what Paul is going to do. He's already hinted what the secret is, but he's going to eventually blurt it out. But there's three things this morning. And we're going to spend most of our time here. This is critical. You're going to learn contentment. You're going to be content. Here, here's three secrets from Paul. And here's the first one. That your contentment is not based on circumstances. It is not based on circumstances. Now, unconsciously, this is what you've been taught. Every commercial, every advertisement, when your circumstances meet up with your desires, guess what happens? Contentment. Someday. Right? We call this the when-then syndrome. When my husband stops acting like an idiot, when my kids are gone, when I make enough money, when I get the bathroom fixed, when I get leather interior, when I get the promotion, when, 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 when I lose 10 pounds, when, whatever, then I will be happy. Then I will be content. And let me tell you something. It's a lie. It's a lie. When then syndrome is a lie. And, and, and if you want a great example, look at famous people. Look at Hollywood. I mean, these pe- some of these people, they're, they're more depressed than anyone else, right? The suicide rate, the, just the divorce rate, it's, it's through the roof. Why is it the people that are at the top? Because they got to the top and they realized, man, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Some of you know this right now. You're sitting in this room. You, for 15 years, you were trying to get to the top. You're 15 years, you're trying to get that, that, that extra zero on your, on your bank account. That you've been working, dude, 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 you got, you finally got there. And then you realized, oh, <laughs> okay. There's another ladder to climb. Oh, there's, there's another this. It's just, it's, it's like a dog chasing his tail. How many of you have dogs that chase your ta- their tails? Our dog's an idiot. He chases his tail. And I'm like, what are you doing? Just going around and around and around. You get dizzy. You get breathing real hard. And, and even if you do catch it, what are you going to do then? If you finally got it, if you, if you let go, you just wasted all that time. But if you hold on, you're kind of limited. You just walk around like this the whole time. What are you going to do? That's what some of you are doing right now. You are chasing your tail. 
And what are you going to do when you catch it? Right? You look as silly as a dog running around, panting, getting tired, and going back at him. But Paul says this, you got to get this. Right? Contentment is beyond your circumstances. Look what Paul says. He says, I'm not speaking of being in need. I have learned whatever situation, underline that, whatever situation, I am to be content. I have learned the secret of, placing, of, of facing plenty. He says, whatever, whether it's high, whether it's low, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every. Your contentment is beyond your stuff. It has to be. Right? Because he's got them both. I was thinking about this week, just reflecting, reflecting on the 80s, because that's what I do constantly. And so I was thinking about, you know, when I grew up, and some of you were there, when I grew up, do you know what we did in the summer? Anything we wanted, except stay home. Your parents kicked you out after the Frosted Flakes and said, we don't want to see you again until it's dark. And so we went out and did whatever we wanted. And, and when we did come home, we had one video game system. It was called Atari. All right, it had one orange button and a little joystick, and that was it. And every game, all three of them they had, were the same, made the same sounds. There was no game ending. It was just like, whatever. You're bored with it in two minutes, right? If you wanted to watch a movie on the VCR, you had to go to a store and literally pay like 80 bucks because it was like a down payment because no one had movies back then. So you didn't do a lot of that. Um, you know, if you wanted to take a picture and get it right away, you had to use this thing called a Polaroid, which is kind of actually coming back. But the old Polaroids, it was like you take a picture. Is that me? I can't tell. It, was, it was just wasn't clear. And if you wanted a clear picture, you had to take it to the little Kodak booth that was at the grocery store and get it like three months later. All right? It was, there was no instant anything. If you want to watch TV and change the channel, remote controls in the 80s were called kids. So, so you, and there was two dials on the TV. There was a VHF and a UHF. Remember this? And okay, if any channel over 12, you had to go up and like turn the dial and get the, hey, just stand there, kid. Yeah, I got it. I got it. That was the remote control. If you wanted to call somebody on the phone, you actually, this is, this is miraculous, you had to know their phone number. I mean, legit, right? Some of y'all, the only number you know is operator, zero. 911, that's my only number I know. I mean, you had, if you want to call, and even then you had to stand like five feet from the phone because there was a cord. And if you weren't careful, you could wrap it around your, you could kill yourself on the phone. If you had a car phone, it was a, in a bag and you didn't use it because it cost like $20 a second. So you're like, I'm on the way home. Uh, okay. Sports, there was one season for sports. Saturday morning, that was cartoon time. It wasn't 24-hour cartoons. 24-hour news came on at 6, came on at 11, right? And, and I say all that, and, and, and one of the most, like, I look like on this, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, how could people not die? Remember how you used to have to make popcorn? You get oil out over an open flame and pour the kernels in. Some of you are like, what is that? Now you just hit a button, and it just pops, right? How much does your bag weigh? I, I say all this to not because I'm reminiscing on the good old days, but those things are already obsolete. You want a movie? You can watch it during a sermon. You, you, you want to go somewhere? You want to talk to someone? Information. We live in the most information overload, supposedly so connected, so anything you want, anytime, 24 hour a day, and yet we are the most bored, depressed society that's ever been around. We got more money, we got more stuff, we got more access than at any time in history and our people are more depressed and miserable. And you know what the number one ministry, growing ministry in America is? Christian counseling. Because we got more stuff and we're more depressed and broken than ever. And if ever it was proof that your stuff doesn't make you happy, it should be living in America in 2015. Right? Because the American dream, it's a lie. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making a career and making money and having success and having a house. I'm not saying that. But if you think that is going to make you happy and content, you're missing it. You're going to be, you're going to be lacking. You're going to be chasing your tail. I went to the ATM this week 
which I don't do often, but I needed 10 bucks for my kid's taco lunch. And I'm like, fine, I'll go out to... So I go to the bank machine and I see as I'm putting my card in, there's a receipt still sitting there. I'm like, it's none of your business. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. All right. <laughs> okay, doesn't have a name, but I look and I'm like, immediately I see all these zeros and I'm like, checking account that much? And I immediately in my mind thought, what would it be like to have that much in my checking account? I don't even know. There's a lot of zeros there. But then I thought, I went to this text because I was actually moderately spiritual at this point because I had just been studying. And I said, I wonder if this person, whoever he is, is happy. I wonder if he's content. Because he got a lot of zeros there. But I wonder if he's worried about those zeros dropping off. Because I'm not. Because I ain't got any of those zeros. <laughs> so, and I honestly thought in that moment, you know what, I am completely content with where God has me. I'm content with the fact that I'm taking $10 out of the bank account. And I, don't, I, I wonder if he is. I wonder if he is. I know you, some of you think, especially some of you are older and you're wiser and you get this, and some of you are young and wiser. Some of you think, yeah, but I'd like to learn contentment with a lot of stuff. Teach me that lesson, Lord. Teach me that lesson. You think that that'll make you content, and you think you'll learn it there, but you won't. There's a whole book of the Bible written on it. It's called Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, here, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try this experiment where I'm going to give myself everything I could ever want and see how I feel, and he feels junky. And at the end, he says, hey, the end of it all is this. Just love God. Serve him. I'm here to tell you because I care about you and because I don't want you to be empty your contentment is not based on your stuff, and it never will be. Don't buy into when, then, right? Here's the second thing. It's contentment is something that you got to learn, that you have to learn. Because it is, not, it is not normal. It's not the norm. It is not part of your DNA. And if you want proof positive, if you don't have kids, you wait and see. Because the day after Christmas, you could have spent hundreds of dollars giving them everything that was on their Christmas list, and then there's some random cousin who gives them a $5 gift card to Target. And what do they want to do the day after Christmas? Can we go to Target? You just got a $1,000 thing over there. Yeah, but I got $5 I want to spend at Target. I can get some gum, a bottle of water. Why? Because there is something in our DNA that wants more. And so you've got to learn contentment. Look what Paul says. I have learned in whatever situation. Go down to verse 12. I have learned the secret. And in both cases, in the original language, the first learned is in the past tense, looking at it as one event in one period of time. The second word learned is in a different past tense. It's still past, but it's with present results. I have learned and I still know and I have learned point is, you have to learn it. He says, how do I learn it? I learned it when I was low, and he was low. He was shipwrecked three times. After the second one, I'm not getting on a boat. He does. He's at sea, adrift. He says, I have no food. I had no place to sleep. I was cold. I was broke. I learned it there. But he didn't just learn it there. He learned it when he abounded. Remember, he came from a rich family. He sat in Lydia's home, which is a nice house for a specific amount of time. There was times of plenty. There was times of nothing. He says, and I learned contentment. Have you learned it? Here's a prerequisite. If you're going to learn something, and here's, here's, here's what I love about Paul. He thinks through how he's putting his letter together. If you're going to learn something, what do you have to be? You've got to be teachable. You've got to be willing to listen, which is why I think he talks about this last because he's already talked about what? Humility, anxiety, thankfulness, getting along, not complaining. He's dealt with all these things. If you're not humble, you're not going to listen to anybody. If you're just mad at everybody, you're not going to listen to everybody. If you're just anxious about everything, you're not going to listen. These are all prerequisites to being teachable. Because if you're always thinking about everything else, and oh, it's not fair, and I'm dissatisfied, oh, you're not going to be looking at you being teachable. Let me just give you three quick thoughts on being teachable, okay? 
Just three quick helpful things for us. Number one is don't compare. Just don't compare with other people. Right? Well, they, well, their family always gets to go away, and we never do it. And oh, look at her. If my husband was like hers, I would be happy. You know, if I lost this and I lost that, and don't compare. Don't compare. Because all you're doing is you're looking at other people and not yourself. You're aware of everything else and how it's not fair and how they're always this and you're not this and you work just as hard and how come you're this. You know what you do instead? Is you rejoice when something good happens to someone else. Their team wins, your team loses, rejoice. He gets the promotion you don't, rejoice. He makes more money than you, rejoice. He's thinner than you or she's thinner than you or they're taller than you, rejoice. Don't compare. Because then you'll be, you'll be listening and teachable. Second thing is this, be a noticer. What I mean by that is notice evidences of grace all around you. We've talked about this a lot in this book, but you gotta be looking. Because look, you're gonna always see, there will always be stains on the carpet. There's always gonna be fingerprints on the wall. There is always going to be cellulite. And there's more and more of it as we get older. It's just, and if you're only focusing on the, oh, look at there, their house isn't so dirty. Uh, you're only focusing on the negative. Look, the world is broken. The world is messy. The world is mundane. You've got to look for evidences of grace. Everyone's complaining about the government. Oh, the government, the Senate, and Congress, and Guess what? If your candidate wins, okay, if your candidate wins the presidency, guess what? This country's still going to be broke. It's, I don't care who the candidate is. They are not going to fix America. Only one person can fix America, and his name is Jesus, and he's not on the ballot next time. That's your only hope. Yeah, this guy might make you a little bit more comfortable. You might lower taxes. Yeah, your only hope is Jesus. So stop complaining about it and worrying about it. He's already ordained who the president's going to be anyway. That's an evidence of grace. He's in control. He's not shocked. I can't believe they got 51%. I thought they were going to lose. That's an evidence of grace that he is sovereign and in control. The toilet overflows in the house. That's a bummer. At least we got another toilet. We're digging a hole out back. That's an evidence of grace. There's always evidences of grace. There's always. All over. You got to look for them. And, and we got to stop living in the past and we got to stop, oh, the, oh, what if I would have, uh, or what is going to, oh, what if I do that, oh. we got to stop living there and we've got to start living in the present because you're missing what God has right in front of you. He's got stuff right in front of you. He's got good things right in front of you. This is your reality. Walk in it. Is it where you thought you'd be? Maybe not. Be content right there. Enjoy now. Kids get, kids get this. They enjoy now. Parents are, oh. Last night in our house, our, our youngest, he, he says, let's have hot chocolate and a fire. I'm thinking, I don't want any of those things. I want to go to bed. But just got out the hot chocolate, got out the marshmallows, lit the fake gas fire, and just enjoyed that. And they wanted to, you know, just, that's the now. Don't miss that. Because I'm going to want that in 20 years, and I'm going to have it, right? And so don't miss what's, what God has right for you right now, because you're trying, oh, what if I didn't? Or, oh, what if I did, right? Look for evidence of grace. And finally, if we're going to be teachable, learn to replace why, the why with the what. You're not promised the answer to why. I don't know why. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. And it's hard not to know why, isn't it? Look at the story of Job. You know, I, I read Job and I know God is good and faithful, but sometimes it feels like God sold Job out a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, he's, Job's faithful, living, living faithful, and God tells Satan, have you looked at Job? Go get him. That's what he tells him. And Job's like, what do I do? And, and he's asking, why, 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 God? Why, 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 God? Why, why, why? You know the only answer Job gets in the end? Who are you again? Because I'm God. What do you got to say? 
I'm God. That's the answer Job gets, and he realizes it and says, oh, you're right, you're God, I'm not. Sometimes you don't get the why, but you can get the what. You can ask the question, God, what can I learn from this? Have you asked that? God, what part of this is for my protection? You've said no, and I, and I don't know why, but why, can you show me what I'm supposed to do with this no or this hold on right now? What other opportunities could God be opening up if he closes this one over here? What maturity is God starting to build in me? Those, those are hard questions, but that's the question, if you're going to be teachable, you got to ask. And you know when it's most important to ask? Not when everything's falling apart. When everything is going well, when there's a lot of zeros, when everything is healthy and everyone's doing well. And that, that is the most important time for you to ask the what. Because you know why? You're, you're, you're often less teachable there. You're often just coasting. Everything's good. I don't need anything. You better start asking it then because everything's not always going to be good. It's a great time when, things, when you're at the top to say, Lord, what do you want me to know? Because there's going to be a valley eventually. You need to learn it now. You need to be content now. Don't waste your, your prosperity. Don't waste your, your trial. It's the lesson. Right? But be teachable. Right? Be teachable. Understand that, that your contentment doesn't come from your stuff. And then the real secret. He's kind of hinted at them. And he's going to give us the real final secret. And the most quoted and misquoted verse in all the Bible. This is the weightlifter verse. This is the eye black football player t-shirt verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? Now, let me just tell you this. And this, I know there's well-meaning people and well-meaning everything. This has nothing to do with you benching 450 pounds. It has nothing to do with you making a three-pointer or shooting par or kicking a goal. Has nothing to do with you getting a scholarship, being the CEO, right? It has nothing to do with any of those things. Because believe it or not, there are things that you can't do and never will be able to do. I will never be able to dunk a basketball. I will never be able to play center for an NBA team. I don't care how much I quote the verse and I don't care how much I pray and I do jumping practice. Ain't going to happen. And this is not a promise. If I just believe it, I'll be in a place center for the bulls. Okay, so it's not that. So if you got the tattoo on your arm, Philippians 4.13, you don't have to erase it. But you do need to know what it means. All right? Some of you are like, crud. <laughs> Ruin that one. I'll come put mom over it tomorrow. Here's what it means, that you have the power in Christ to, do, to handle anything he throws your way, whether it's a lot or a little. You have the power in Christ, whether you are, if you are broke as a joke and you're eating ramen noodles and barely paying the bills, that you have the power in Christ to sustain you. And at the same time, if you are loaded and have a lot of money, that you have the power that your money is not going to own you. Because some of y'all, it owns you. But you have the power for this to not be an idol. Whether God gives it or God takes it away, I am going to be content. That is what the verse means. It, whatever comes your way in God's providence, you can handle it. Why? Because Christ strengthens me. If I have a lot or if I have a little, if my team wins, if my team loses, I can handle it because of Christ. Because Christ is enough. This is the secret to Paul's contentment. This is why he says, to live is Christ. It's not really a secret. He's told us a thousand times in this book already. But it's for you, which you need to understand, that contentment is something that is only found in Christ. It's in Christ. It's not found in your job. It's not found in getting married. It's not found in having another kid. It's not found in making the team. It's not found in the SAT score being whatever. It's not getting into law school. It's not making a million dollars. It is found in Christ. And, and what's interesting is if you look at the Stoics of Paul's day, the religious people of Paul's day, they believed that contentment was one of the highest virtues, just like Paul. But for them, contentment meant separating from everything. 
I don't need anything. I can live just in rags. I don't need to eat anything. And it was this idea of self-sufficiency, right? Of denying myself and being independent. And that is not what Paul is saying, right? We have Christians that are like that, don't we? That think if I just do the hardest thing, it's always got to be the hardest thing because God wants me to do the hardest thing. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. If I just take a vow of poverty and I, I'll, I won't talk to people for four months at a time and I'm just going to be miserable and I'll throw ashes on my head so everyone knows how holy I am. It's just pharisaicalism. That's all it is. He's not saying self-sufficient, be my own little hermit for Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is my sufficiency is found in my relationship with Jesus, Period. So if Jesus gives me a million dollars or Jesus gives me 10 cents, I am happy with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Because he is supremely valuable because he is ultimately satisfying. I am content. And look, when y'all value Christ like that, when you pursue Christ like that, I promise you contentment will be the byproduct. But if you're always like, oh, I need a new husband. I need a new this. I need a new you're going you're gonna to be miserable because you might get it. And probably that's why you had an affair or that's why you did this because you weren't content and you realize, oh, I just blew it up worse than I did all the time. But here, here's, here's a definition of contentment for us, right? It's not mine. I stole it from a pastor who stole it from another pastor who stole it from somebody else. But here, here's the idea of what we're talking about, that contentment is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God. And then knowing that he is in control of everything. He's sovereign. That's content. God, whatever you put in front of me, whether I get the scholarship or I don't, whether I get the job or whether I don't, whether I have the money or whether I don't, I am glad that you are just with me. I am glad that you are in control and that I am not. And whether you give or whether you take away, my responsibility, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is contentment. Very simple. And, and this is what the, the trouble for me in a sermon like this. It's, it's very hard to preach because I don't have a go out and do, go do something. Turn off the TV like last week or whatever. I don't have one of those. This is a mindset that you have to get into your heart. You have, you have to understand. And one of the ways I think to help you is, is to remember what do you really deserve? I mean, think about ultimately what you deserve. All right? You deserve Hell. You deserve wrath. And what does God give you? Heaven, grace, love, himself through Christ. I, I love, I listen to Dave Ramsey all the time. We're teaching his class for our finances. And you know, Dave Ramsey's big thing is when someone asks him, how, how you doing? He always says, better than I deserve. You know what? There's something true to that. If hell is my reference point on what I deserve, then I am certainly doing better than I deserve. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter where you are on the financial scale, you are better than you deserve because you deserve wrath. And when you think about that, no wonder Paul can say things like this in, in 2 Corinthians. This light momentary affliction, you mean jail, shipwreck, beaten, stoned, eventually beheaded? Yeah, all that. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. It's so worth it because of what's coming. So I can, I can handle it all. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Hey, this is a hard lesson. Some of y'all are chasing your tail and you look rather silly. It's time to stop. You say, well, what do I need to do? How do I stop chasing my tail? Got, got your answer from Paul, real quick. All right, just one of the most practical things you can do. If you want to start cultivating, general, I mean, cultivating uh, contentment in your life, you know what you need to do? You need to start giving your stuff away. Some of you are visiting this morning, like, see? Go to church one time in five years. They talk about money. They just want my money. Build a building, trying to get money. We don't want your money. If you go here, you know this. If you don't go here, we don't even take an offering. We don't want your money. We're paying off the building. The building will pay, be paid off in less than two years, Lord willing. We're not worried about money. You guys are super generous. What I want 
is what the apostle wants for these people. Right? Look what he says real quick. They're a generous church. He says, it's kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They were a generous church. But here's what Paul says he wants. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I don't want your money. I don't want your, you know, little whatever. I want the fruit to your credit. And what he's saying is this, and and you may not understand how this works, but and I don't understand completely, but what scripture teaches is, in essence, you have a bank account in heaven if you're a Christian. Right? That you have this eternal bank account that, that you can store up treasure in heaven. And every time you are generous or you do something in the name of Christ, there's a little little addition to that, that savings account, that treasure in heaven account. And what Paul is saying, I don't need your stuff. But I, what I do want is when you get to heaven, for your account to be full. I want you to hear when you see Jesus face to face, well done. That's what I want. And so that's what he's saying. And that's what I want for you. I don't want your money. But I do want every single person in this room, when you stand before Jesus, and you will stand before Jesus, you hear, well done. You, you, you were faithful with what I gave you. Go be in charge of this. See, that's, that's the heart of it. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And, and the first thing about being generous, here's what happened. Three things will happen when you're generous. Number one is that you have an eternal impact. You have an eternal impact when you are generous. When you steward God's stuff, and it's not about how much you give to God. What it is about is how much of God's stuff did you keep? Because it's all his. It is all his. And when you take his stuff and you are generous with it and you, and you give it to other people, it's a little thing in your account. And you have no clue how much impact that will have. You say, well, I don't have very much. I'm just a college student. I don't have very, I'm a high school, we're just kind of broke. Do you have more than two pennies? Because Jesus told, said that that widow who gave two pennies gave more than everybody else. When you give a cup of water in the name of Christ, said that your reward will not be taken from you. It's not about how much. It's about the heart. Right? And here's what, here's what I want you to think. You, you have, I want you to be encouraged by this. Because some of you are like, I just don't have a lot. I, don't, I mean, Whatever. I want you to see just from these guys. These guys are your example. How much can God do with just a little bit? I mean, this is a poor church. And, and I don't know who again reported that Paul was in prison or whatever. But you can imagine they're in their Sunday service. And they say, hey, Paul's in prison. We're taking up a collection. Just bring what you can. And so, you know, Lydia may have a little bit more because she's got a business. But, you know, this, this family over here, all they got is we got an extra blanket. Can, you think he could, yeah, he'll use an extra blanket. And this family over here, oh, we, we just, you got the beef jerky. We got the bacon. Send that along. Oh, we got, uh, my, my little daughter made some little socks for Paul in case his feet are cold. Right? You got all these people pulling their resources together. What happens if these people don't send a gift? Have you thought about that? What if the Holy Spirit's moving? I want you to send a gift to Paul. And they're like, you know what? The economy's bad. I can't afford it. I, I might need that jacket. What if... The old one gets ruined, and I have this jacket, and, and you know, we don't, we, we don't have time for her to make her little socks for Paul. We don't have, we, we, we'll do it next year at the next mission's giving. What if they said no? You know what happens? You don't have the book of Philippians. That's what happens. You don't get the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is just a response to a group of people giving. And if, and if the old, old lady says, I don't... I don't, I don't want to give my jacket. And if the little kids don't, don't give their little socks, and if Lydia doesn't give her money, there is no Philippians. Can you imagine Scripture without, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? He who began a good work in you will complete it in a day. Uh, Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Can you imagine what, we don't, with the Bible without those passages? And it was all because a few people just gave a little bit. And now what is the result? Millions and millions and millions and millions of people have been encouraged by a letter because a lady gave a jacket. Because this little guy gave a little bit of money. All because of that. 
You think they, she thought, well, I'm going to give this jacket and now the world's going to be changed. You think she thought that? No way. That's what God does. You have no clue. And, and I'm not just talking about the church. Yes, many of you give to the church. Yes, it pays the bills. And, and yes, every time you give to this church, every time you do, every, it, every sermon I preach, every time someone gets saved through a sermon or someone goes to a house or someone's counseled or a little kid is loved on or a, or a middle schooler hears the gospel or, or whatever, if you are supporting this church, a little ching in your eternal bank account. Because you are storing up treasure in heaven. But I want you guys to think beyond this church. Because this is just one little deal. There is so much impact out there. We, my family, a couple years ago, we adopted a little girl from uh, somewhere in Central America through World Vision. We sent $35 a month. And that $35 provides a Dilma, is her name. Provides her food and an education. A Christian education. 35 bucks a month. I don't know what Adele was going to do with her life. But maybe she becomes a mother of five kids and four of them become pastors. Right? I don't know what God's going to do with that. But I'm going to be faithful with my $35. And if that means I have to go out to eat once less a month so that Adilma can eat three squares a day, I want to do that. See, that's the kind of little stuff you can do. The food pantry downtown. I read an article last week. It's empty. It needs food. It's a great opportunity for someone. You want to adopt a missionary? We got plenty of them that would love for you to financially support, right? We got one of our guys in Africa. He's trying to adopt 35 orphans. You want an orphan to adopt financially? Talk, come talk to us. There's, there's just needs. You got, we got to start thinking beyond just, oh, I'm going to do my little envelope. We got, we got folks in this church, there's going to be no Christmas. Or it's going to be very light. You want to provide an opportunity to buy a Christmas present? Hey, we, we can help figure that thing out. There's lots of opportunities if you just look. Not just the church. Beyond. Maybe you have an extra room in your house and we got an international SCAD student that needs a room and you're like, well, nobody's living in it. I'll let the... Just use your stuff because you do not know what God will do. Right? You think, well, I don't have much stuff. Well, the little boy that showed up at, the, at Jesus' teaching who had five loaves and two fish, I'm pretty sure he didn't think that he was going to feed 10,000 people that day. But he gave it. And what does God do? It, it cultivates contentment when you give your stuff away and it has eternal discount. Second thing is this, real quick. He says, I received full payment. More I am more, and more I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When you are generous, y'all, it is pleasing to your Heavenly Father. It just is. I told you last week about how Milton got out Ran into a car, dented the car. Still haven't heard from the people. Praise God. Maybe they lost my number. Anyway, when they came in, the, when we came in the house and we're all frustrated and everyone wants to choke the dog and, and we're just kind of wrestling, my little seven-year-old goes upstairs and he gets his little piggy bank and he comes downstairs and he says, Dad, you can pay for the door with this. And my first thought is, he's the one that let the dog out. <laughs> He's just trying to buy his way out. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I'll tell you, as a dad, I was so touched. Right? He, he would give me his, you know, $3, whatever it was. And I said, no, buddy, you, you keep your, oh, thank you, dog. See, if I'm a broken father and my son is generous with his stuff and that pleases me, what do you think God the Father does when he sees you with his stuff and, you, and you're like, here, I'm going to use this for someone else? How do you think God the Father feels about that? I can tell you it pleases him. He says it right here. It's pleasing. When you take the stuff God has given you and you use it for his glory, he's like, that's my girl. That's my girl. Think eternal. That's my boy. Got to start seeing this is an opportunity for you to worship and to please God. And one more thing, it's an opportunity. Verse 19, it says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. To our God and Father be glory in it forever and ever. Here's, here's what giving and being generous does also it strengthens your faith. You know why? When you choose, and this is what I tell if you're looking to get married in this church and you're young, here's what I tell all our couples. 
you need to get a budget, you need to live off of 80%, you need to give 10%, and you need to save 10%. That's kind of where we go, right? Good starting place. When you give off the top, 10% goes to God. And then you choose to live on less than you make. You know what, you know what it does? It actually, it, it, it strengthens your faith because you're, you're saying, God, I trust you with less than all that I have, and I want you to show up in big ways. When's the last time, if you're really honest, God has showed up in a big way in some of y'all's lives. I mean, I mean, he's done something that it was clearly, I was praying, God came through, and this was not me. I think sometimes we have the Holy Spirit, we have this, this great big God, and we don't see anything big happen because we just don't step out in faith. And one of those areas is in the areas of finances. And it is hypocritical for the church of Jesus Christ to say, yeah, I believe that God became a man was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for my sins, rose again on the third day, and promises now that if I turn from my sin and believe in him, that when my body dies and goes into the ground, that one day he will resurrect me, that he will take me to be with him forever and ever in heaven, where I live in, in great joy and contentment for all eternity. I believe God for that, but I don't know if I can trust him with my money. I mean, that's just ridiculous, Right? But that's where so many of y'all are at. And, and you got to get outside yourself. And you got to start trusting. God will meet your needs. He doesn't say your wants. He, and it's the needs that he says you have. Not necessarily what you say. My needs are, I need 2.7 cars and blah, blah. No. He'll meet your needs according to what he knows is best. Because he says, your heavenly father knows you need this stuff. He knows what you need. I can tell you this, I've done a lot of dumb things as a husband and a lot of dumb things as a, as a father, and I've been a failure as a man many times in my life. But one thing that I feel like God has shown huge grace to me and my wife after 17 years of marriage, even from the beginning, we have always given God off the top, 10%. When it was hard, I mean, when I'm in seminary making 23K a year with two kids and a $1,000 mortgage, and, and writing papers and working. When I was there, we, the first check, it was a hard check. And I can tell you with certainty and absolute confidence that there is not one time in my life that I have ever had a need that God has not met. And I've seen it time and time again, supernaturally, where God has provided in a miraculous way. Why? Because off the top, we trusted him. We're sending... This money to this church, we were supporting a missionary for like 30 bucks a month, which you say, that's not a lot of money. It is when you're making 2100 a month. But we were supporting this guy, and I saw God come through time and time again. Did I have a lot of extra? No, but we had everything we need. Some of y'all need to learn that. Some of you, maybe the application is, you're going to get a raise this year, and you've been living very, you've been living fine off of what you got. What's the American way? We get 5% raise, we spend 5% more. Isn't that way it works? How about this next year? You get a 5% raise, give it away. If you're content now anyway, see what God will do with that. See what he'll do. I mean, it's, it's just a way of eternal. Boop. Sending it all ahead. We just want to be a generous church. It strengthens your faith. The generous man will prosper. He who waters will himself be watered. That's what Solomon says. And I want the fruit that is for your credit. Right? I want to be a church that's generous. Paul wants us to be a church that's content. Have you learned contentment? Again, I don't have anything for you to go to do, but here's the beauty of it. I trust the Holy Spirit that lives in you enough that you know where you haven't been content. I mean, you know it, don't you? I did this week. You know the areas that you're like, yeah, um, I'm looking for a little bit too much joy in that. You know what God's calling you to do, most of it. Or if you don't, why don't you spend some time asking this week? We're going to worship in a second. Ask God, God, what do you want me to do? You gave me this extra this. How do you want me to use this for your glory? Let him teach you. Let him show you. He'll show you if you ask. You humble enough to ask? Right. We're going to worship. Just be open to what the Spirit is putting on your heart. Just be open to that. Don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer.
Don't keep chasing your tail, please. You look silly. And even if you do get it, what are you going to do? You find your contentment in Jesus. Find your hope, whether you abound or whether you have little, in Christ. Let's stand. Let's worship. Let's ask God to move in our midst. Father, just show us the value of your son. Please, by your spirit, show us where we need to, to be, where we need to know. Show us where we have been searching for significance in, in all the wrong places, where we have been worshiping false gods that cannot carry the weight of your glory. Father, just make us a church that is content. Make us a people that are content, whether you give or take away. And, and that's a hard thing to pray, but Lord, Paul is, is pointing us in that direction. We know you are good and we know you are sovereign and we know that when we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that you, all these things will be added. We know you know our needs. So just meet them. Just let us be a group of people who are content to find our sufficiency in Christ. All we have is Christ. We sang it. Let us believe it. For your name's sake, I pray.